Frenchman's Bend was a section of rich river-bottom country lying twenty miles southeast of Jefferson, hill-cradled and remote, definite yet without boundaries, straddling into two counties and owning allegiance to neither. It had been the original grant and site of a tremendous pre-Civil War plantation, the ruins of which, the gutted shell of an enormous house with its fallen stables and slave quarters and overgrown gardens and brick terraces and promenades, were still known as the Old Frenchman Place, although the original boundaries now existed only on old faded records in the chancery clerk's office in the county courthouse in Jefferson, and even some of the once fertile fields had long since reverted to the cane and cypress jungle from which their first master had hewed them. He had quite possibly been a foreigner, though not necessarily French, since to the people who had come after him and had almost obliterated all trace of his sojourn, anyone speaking the tongue with a foreign flavor or whose appearance or even occupation was strange would have been a Frenchman, regardless of what nationality he might affirm, just as to their more urban coevals, if he had elected to settle in Jefferson itself, say, he would have been called a Dutchman. But now nobody knew what he had actually been, not even Will Varner who was sixty years old and now owned a good deal of his original grant, including the site of his ruined mansion. Because he was gone now, the foreigner, the Frenchman, with his family and his slaves and his magnificence. His dream. His broad acres were parceled out now into small, shiftless, mortgaged farms for the directors of Jefferson Banks to squabble over before selling finally to Will Varner, and all that remained of him was the riverbed which his slaves had straightened for almost ten miles to keep his land from flooding, and the skeleton of the tremendous house which his heirs at large had been pulling down and chopping up, walnut newel posts and stair spindles, oak floors which fifty years later would have been almost priceless, the very clabbards themselves, for thirty years now, for firewood. Even his name was forgotten, his pride but a legend, about the land he had wrested from the jungle and tamed, as a monument to that appellation which those who came after him in battered wagons and on muleback and even on foot, with flintlock rifles and dogs and children and homemade whiskey stills and Protestant psalm books, could not even read, let alone pronounce, and which now had nothing to do with any once-living man at all. His dream and his bride now dust, with the lost dust of his anonymous bones, his legend, but the stubborn tale of the money he buried somewhere about the place when Grant overran the country on his way to Vicksburg. The people who inherited from him came from the northeast, through the Tennessee mountains, by stages marked by the bearing and raising of a generation of children. They came from the Atlantic seaboard and, before that, from England and the Scottish and Welsh marches, as some of the names would indicate. Turpin and Haley and Whittington, McCallum and Murray and Leonard and Little John, and other names like Riddup and Armstead and Doshi, which could have come from nowhere, since certainly no man would deliberately select one of them for his own. They brought no slaves, and no Fife and Chippendale high boys. Indeed, what they did bring, most of them could and did carry in their hands. They took up land and built one and two room cabins and never painted them and married one another, and produced children, and added other rooms one by one to the original cabins, and did not paint them either. But that was all. Their descendants still planted cotton in the bottomland, and corn along the edge of the hills, and in the secret coves in the hills made whiskey of the corn, 
and sold what they did not drink. Federal officers went into the country and vanished.